going to read now from Galatians chapter 1, and it comes from 1168 in the Church Bibles. So that's Galatians chapter 1, and starting at verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism more than many of my own age uh, among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I didn't go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Thanks very much for reading so clearly, Bob. Uh, Do keep open that passage uh, in front of you. We'll be looking at it quite closely. But uh, before we do so... Let's pray together. Father, we pray that the Holy Scriptures would make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, Prime Minister's questions uh, this uh, week. The political commentators tell us that the gloves finally came off. Sunak versus Starmer at last. And some of those, um, perhaps the more mature political commentators, um, were quite disappointed. I had thought, said one, that with Sunak and Starmer, we had the adults in the room, but clearly not. In other words, they were disappointed that the political debate couldn't be conducted with respect and restraint and a generosity of spirit. Now, it should be the same in in religious debates, some people would argue. If you want to be constructive, well, you need to have respect and you need to have restraint and a kind of willingness 
to negotiate. And you must avidly avoid all kinds of confrontation and correction and challenge. The perceived wisdom is that you need to be willing to negotiate. Galatians 1 verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than that's what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Oh dear. Seems like Paul was having a bit of an off day. Uh, the letter, letter to the Galatians was, after all, quite early. Um, it was either late 40s or early 50s, one of the very earliest letters. Perhaps Paul had a bit of growing up to do at this point. Perhaps this was a hangover from his pre-conversion zealotry. It was only later, perhaps, that he learned a more ironic tone and an approach which stresses keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, some people would go even further and argue that Paul is not actually representative of Jesus' Christianity, but a late addition, a Johnny-come-lately, not one of the twelve, but somebody who came along and corrupted the Christianity of Jesus. And so his harsh, abrupt, narrow-minded bigotry should only be listened to as a mere human source of historical information. <clears throat> now, okay, of, of course it is good to negotiate uh, when you come to the political realm. Of course that's right. If we're talking about the NHS or immigration or the cost of living crisis, all of these issues are better handled through negotiation. But Galatians teaches us that that's not always true in the religious realm. Because here in Galatians we find an opposite view. That far from Paul demonstrating a lamentable narrow-mindedness, he actually teaches us a vital principle, a principle that we must take on board. And the principle is this, that there is such a thing as truth with a capital T, and that truth is non-negotiable. Now, against whom does Paul pronounce uh, this curse? Whom does he anathematize? Well, verse 7 tells us those who are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, last week we saw that the false teachers had infiltrated the Galatian churches, modern-day Turkey. And the Galatians were letting themselves be led into mortal danger. And Paul is astonished. It's as if he sees his precious children being led into traffic. So he passionately and urgently shouts, Stop! And he confronts and he corrects 
And he even condemns those who are preaching this perverted gospel. And so now as we enter this second half of chapter 1 from verse 11, with a firm grasp on the arm, Paul takes them aside to explain the seriousness of the situation. And you can hear his tenderness. He says, brothers and sisters, this is the, the tenderness of a parent trying to protect their children. And his big point to them and to us is that that his gospel is not of human origin. No, it is God's truth. Truth with a capital T. Verse 11. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. See, the problem is that false teachers are persuading the Galatians that Paul's gospel message isn't the full deal because Paul himself isn't the full deal. Yes, they say, it is great that Paul got you started on this Christian path. That's really great. But we'd like you to know that we are from Jerusalem in Judea. We've been with the real apostles, and it seems as if Paul hasn't quite told you everything. That's why we're here. He seems to have forgotten that Christianity is cradled in the religion of the Old Testament, of Moses. Faith in Christ alone, oh yes, of course, that's the way in, but the way on is Moses. Don't forget Moses. And that is why Paul is so fervent, impassioned, and tackles the issue head-on with them. He knows that this different gospel they bring, which is no gospel, leads people from Christ and places them under the law and the curse of the law. But before he can begin to talk about that directly, and deal with the substance of his gospel of grace, he must deal with those who are insinuating that he is, at best, a second-class apostle. Maybe that thought has come across your mind at some point, that maybe maybe Paul is, in some way, kind of second-class as an apostle. After all, he wasn't there, was he, originally, with Peter and John and Andrew and the rest? those three years of Christ's ministry. And yet Paul is making the astonishing claim that his message is of divine origin. That his words are not his words, but God's words. That his message is not his message, but God's message. That his gospel is not his message, but it is God's. Truth with a capital T non-negotiable. He's claiming that he is a first-class apostle and nothing less. Now, the reason Paul is adamant his gospel is not a matter of... Sorry, the reason that Paul is adamant is because his gospel is not a matter of theological reflection, 
but revelation. Revelation of Christ, revelation from Christ. Now, if that is right, it means that when a preacher preaches Paul's gospel today, we should listen as if God is preaching to us, because he is. On the other hand, if a preacher denies Paul's gospel, we should consider them under God's curse, because they are. What an awesome responsibility for anyone standing in the pulpit. Question is, is Paul right? Can he back up this claim? Is his gospel divinely revealed? Or is it the product of his study, his fertile imagination? Did he make it up? Did he get it secondhand? Perhaps he cribbed the notes from the original Jerusalem apostles. Well, in verses 13 to 24, Paul goes on to prove the claim that he makes in verses 11 and 12. And he proves it by reference to his autobiography. The situation before his conversion, the situation during his conversion, and after his conversion. And they demonstrate very clearly that Paul got his gospel not from man, but from God. So let's look firstly before his conversion. Paul highlights here for us two aspects of his way of life before Christ met him on the Damascus Road. He persecuted the church intensely and he pursued Jewish traditions with extreme zeal. He was a Jew so committed to the Jewish traditions that he tried to exterminate anyone who threatened them. Christianity poses such a threat, and so Paul dedicates his life to eliminating that threat. And you can read about it in the book of Acts. When it says here that he was advancing in Judaism, the word literally means chopping ahead. Uh, Think of the person in the jungle with, with the machete. Paul is literally saying, I hacked my way ahead. I hacked my way through Christians to get ahead. He is what we would call a fanatical fundamentalist, a ravening wolf, a terrorist, a violent extremist, a religious fundamentalist, the sort of man that you couldn't just sort of reason or persuade. What's the point? that someone going so fast and so furious in the opposite direction, how on earth did he suddenly do an about-face? It's not as if he kind of did a module at the local university and someone made a point and he thought, oh, I hadn't really thought about that. And then he sort of turned around his entire life and went in the opposite direction. It can only be explained if God stopped him in his tracks and turned him around. And that's exactly what happened. Let's look at what happened during his conversion in verses 15 and 16. You see, God the Son met him on the Damascus road. He put thick scales over his eyes and threw him to the ground. 
he underwent a rather violent conversion. And we can see the tremendous change that Paul underwent if we look at the subject of the verbs before and during his conversion. You notice before he says, I persecuted, I was advancing, I was extremely zealous. But then, God set me apart. God called me. God revealed his son in me. In other words, I I was a fanatic, he says. But God in his grace was pleased to stop me in my tracks and turn me around. And notice that at every stage, God is in control of this process. God set him apart like the prophets Isaiah or Jeremiah from my mother's womb, he says. Clearly, Paul had nothing to do with that. His apostleship was something God planned before he could even say the word apostle. And then after God set him apart, Paul says, God called me by his grace. Again, he had nothing to do with it. He was running full pelt in the opposite direction. As John Stott writes, mercy found him and grace called him. God set him apart, God called him by grace, and then he says, finally, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. The scales fell from Paul's blind eyes, and he saw who Jesus really was. Notice it doesn't say that that God was pleased to reveal his son to me, but in me. You see, it wasn't just that Paul physically saw the risen Jesus on the Damascus road. He did, but it wasn't just that. No, he had a spiritual perception of who Jesus was, that he was God's son. Paul's was a private call, and the purpose was for a public ministry, a public commission, to preach the son among the nations, the Gentiles. The persecutor was turned preacher. Now, the thrust of these verses is compelling. Paul, the fanatic fundamentalist, had been a persecutor of the church, but it pleased God to turn the great antagonist into his apostle, a persecutor made preacher. As Calvin so vividly puts it, the ravening wolf first became a sheep then was appointed a shepherd. The prenatal choice, the historic call, and the revelation of the Son of God in him were all God's work. And the change was so great and so sudden that we have to conclude it must have been God's work. So why did God show his power in this way Well, so that we would not treat Paul as a mere man. To teach that Paul's gospel was not from any man, but was God's revelation. Now, there still remains just one plank missing from Paul's argument. Perhaps Paul is making this up. And he got his gospel after his conversion. So that, after all, his message is from men. No, 
He denies this as well. Let's look at what happens after his conversion. And we get this kind of lengthy travelogue that runs from verse or middle of verse 16 to the end of the chapter. And the purpose of it is to prove his independence from the Jerusalem apostles. Now, after his sight was restored, as Acts 9 recounts, he was baptized by Ananias. And then Paul went into Arabia for three years, presumably for a time of meditation and ministry. He doesn't tell us. And then, verse 18, he paid a brief visit to Jerusalem. Now, I'm guessing when he bumped into to Peter and James, they didn't talk about the weather the whole time. But it was just a couple of weeks, nowhere near enough time for them to sort of download the whole of the Christian message to them and to catechize Paul. After that, verse 21, Paul went up north to Syria and Cilicia, um, where his hometown Tarsus was as well. But the point is it was nowhere near Jerusalem. In fact, he says... I was unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Now, if Paul had been kind of like an apprentice to the Jerusalem apostles, then Judea would have been the place where he went around preaching the gospel. But they don't even know him, so that can't have been the case. His travelogue shows that he was, in fact, independent of the Jerusalem apostles. So to sum up, it took three years before Paul went to Jerusalem. His visit lasted a couple of weeks, and he saw only two apostles. And so it's absolutely crazy to think that Paul could have got his gospel from men, from the Jerusalem apostles. The churches of Judea hadn't even met him, At the same time, though, notice this, when they hear about his preaching, do they reject it? No. Verse 24, they praise God because of him. And so do you see then how this completely scuppers the false teachers? It shows both that he is independent of the Jerusalem apostles, and yet at the same time that his message didn't diverge from the message of the Jerusalem apostles, which would have been preached in Judea. So Paul's case is this. His gospel is of divine origin. He can't possibly have invented it or received it from Jerusalem. And we can tell by looking at his pre-conversion fanaticism, the divine initiative in his conversion and post-conversion, his almost total isolation from the Jerusalem church. All these things work together to demonstrate that Paul's gospel was not received from man, but was a revelation from Jesus Christ. Well, we've done the hard work. You'll be glad to know all that travel stuff. Now we just need to think about what the significance of this is for us. What is it that we need to take away from the claim 
that Paul's gospel is originated in God. That through Paul, God speaks the truth uniquely and categorically. Well, first it means that anyone who preaches another gospel is under God's curse. This is harsh. It is also fair. False teachers are like the Pied Piper, playing a merry tune, but leading people to their doom. So the Church of England bishops who are accepting and facilitating a Christian ethic which is different from that of Paul, what does Paul say? Let them be under God's curse. Or the Pope and his cardinals who contradict Paul when they claim that the saints do not lack merit, but they actually have lived such great lives, they've got an excess of merit that they can hand down to the rest of us. What does Paul say? Let them be under God's curse. Or the contemporary theologian, they, they remind us of that famous story of the blind man trying or blind men trying to describe the elephant. And they say, you evangelical Christians, you've got part of, part of the truth, yes, but only part of the truth. There's lots of truth in other places. And that Paul, well, he was, he was a fallible man. He said some good things, but some not so good things. Well, what does Paul say of them? When the truth is God's truth, there can be no negotiation. False teachers, whether in first century Galatia or today, are anathematized. Second, it has something to say to those who are deconstructing their faith. Maybe you've heard of that phrase, maybe you haven't, but it's, it's been quite of a fashionable thing to talk about um, in some circles over the last few years to radically question all that you have believed. And many, including quite a few high-profile people, have deconstructed and ended up walking away from the faith. And they've usually said something like this, that, that um, I can no longer call myself an evangelical, Bible-believing Christian because those people seem to be just a little bit too self-assured. They're they're narrow-minded. They're pretty slow to accommodate the views of other people. They're, they're just too dogmatic. Now, please don't understand me at this point because I've got quite a lot of sympathy because quite often evangelical preachers have sort of forced things on people and they've, they've made it out as if this was what God says and nothing else goes, where there are some things in the Bible where there is, there is latitude for, diff, for believers to have freedom of individual conscience, that there are those things. And yet, and yet, there are some non-negotiables. See, questions are welcome. We welcome questions here always. Uh, and for those people who, 
think that perhaps they have uncritically and unthinkingly just kind of imbibed the faith of their parents, then it's right that they go back to the basics and ask those questions. But since God has spoken to us through the apostles, we simply must go to them for our answers. Because if we don't go to them for our answers, we're going to construct a faith which is different from the faith of the Bible, a different gospel. Third implication. Like Paul, we must refuse to negotiate on the truth. And like him, we must be prepared, if necessary, to confront, to correct, and even to condemn those who veer from his gospel. You see, we honor the gospel when we treasure the gospel, but we also honor the gospel when we confront all that is contrary to the gospel. If someone were to try and palm off a fake 20 pound note on you, how would you react? I imagine you would react with a certain degree of passion. You would probably protest pretty loudly if somebody tried to do that. How much more then should we protest if someone tries to palm off a fake gospel upon us? Why? Because what's at stake is eternal salvation. In verse 4 of chapter 1, Paul tells us that Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. We are by nature evil. That's what Jesus says of us. And we need our sins forgiven And when this evil age comes to an end, there will be a judgment, as we affirmed in the Apostles' Creed. We need rescue. If you are not a Christian, you are in danger. You need to know that. And if you are a Christian and you come across somebody who is perverting the the true gospel, there is no room for negotiation with them because some truth is just simply too serious to negotiate on. Passionate protest, challenge, and confrontation is the right and is the loving response. Now, I hate flying. For me, there are always just far too many things that can can go wrong. And so whenever I uh, do fly, I'm always sort of checking all of the people. Well, I'm checking the plane to make sure nothing's fallen off. I'm checking all of all the people around me to see if any of them look a bit suspicious. And um, I'm looking at the flight attendants, see if they look nervous uh, or not. Now, just imagine that you are there, you've taxied, you're on, you're on the w- runway, and you're ready to take off. And just as things are about to go, you look out the window, because you've got a nice window seat, and there's smoke coming from one of the engines. Now... What do you do? Well, I guess you probably might mention it to to somebody next to you and maybe a few people who've seen what's going on out there. Now, imagine they just say, no, 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 don't don't worry about it. Don't make a big fuss about it all. It's okay. And you're thinking, I think I am going to make a fuss about it. 
and uh, you, you press the, the call button and the attendant uh, comes over and you're, you're telling people, it doesn't look quite right out there, I can see smoke. And, and by this time, some flames have started to come out of the engine as well. How are you going to respond as the flight attendant comes over and says to you, well, look, look, really, can, can you stop making a fuss? Uh, you're, you're beginning to upset some of the other passengers. It's just so unloving of you to, to point, point it out. You're going to ruin their holidays. We all want to go on our holidays. What are you going to do? Panic, yeah. You're going to continue to try and scare those other people, even if the flight is going to be delayed, even if you're going to ruin that holiday. What you say is, well, I'm not negotiating about it. You're up out of your chair and you're saying, well, I'm getting off this plane and I'm taking as many people as possible with me. It is the only loving thing to do. It's the only loving thing to do. The message that lies at the foundation of Christianity is gospel truth. To allow people to pervert that gospel is unloving. The gospel is not open to negotiation because it is the truth that saves. And since Paul's gospel is God's gospel, then to reject Paul is not to reject man, but it is to reject God. It's that serious. Let's take a moment just to reflect upon what we've heard and then I'll lead us in prayer. Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that this uh, message we've heard this evening would teach us and rebuke us if necessary and correct us if necessary, but also train us in righteousness. For Jesus' glory. Amen. The musicians would like to come up. We've been thinking about those who are perverting the gospel, but we're going to turn our gaze for our final uh, hymn to celebrate, celebrate the true gospel. Let's stand and sing Amazing Grace. <laughs>